So yesterday, a uh, mouse got into the teacher's office down down the hill and ate through a bag of uh, of coffee, and uh, it's kind of beans scattered everywhere. And so, um, one of the caretakers put out a uh, one of the humane traps. It's like a small little contraption, and um, and put some some cashews in the trap, and um, and I came in this morning, early this morning, and saw a mouse in the trap, like totally freaked out, you know. And it was, I, I know it was intense for the mouse, but it was intense for me too. Uh, <laughs> they went from like playing dead to like totally freaking out and uh and i i didn't know you know how to release release the mouse or where to do that and so um so so i left came up sat went back the caretaker had taken the mouse uh, out, released released the mouse, and um, I was talking to uh, to Saida, the t- teacher upstairs, and and he said that uh, that he saw the mouse before I did, and at that time the mouse was not freaking out at all. They were devouring the cashews. <laughs> And they ate like all of them, like a lot of cashews. <laughs> and um, and at that moment, I thought uh, I have a lot of a lot in common with the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that qualifies as a Buddhist parable. <laughs> Brian, Don. Does that count? I, I don't know what the meaning is. You guys have to decode the deep Dharma meaning from that, okay? And report back. So this, this path, um, it, it is hard to, hard to capture the kind of richness and beauty of the path. It's hard to say enough about it, but you can also say too much about it. And sometimes the richness of the path is just conveyed, like sometimes when I'm with someone who's practiced a, a lot, a lot, it's just in their, their laughter that I kind of can feel the fullness of the path or a gesture or a word some kindness, and you can actually just feel the, the depth from which that bubbles up. And for me, you know, it's, it's um, in December, it'll be, it'll be 17 years practicing. And uh, it's been just so much more than I've bargained for. Um, I really kind of began practice thinking that it would 
it would occupy like some little corner of my life. It would fit into my life, not obliterate my life. But uh, yeah, it's um, the Dharma just, uh, you know, sometimes uh, does, does what it wants with, with our lives. I have the sense of um, the sense of the path is like is like I'm reading I'm reading this book, and it's a book with many chapters, and I don't know where I am in the book, and I don't know where it's going, and I don't know how it ends. Um, but there's there's a sense of of trusting the author, and not the author in the sense of like the universe is taking care of me, but the author in the sense that that um, that I do have a deep confidence that all of life is practicable, and that gives uh, some kind of um, sense of faith that uh, where, wherever this goes, there will be um, some way of using that to free the heart. There, there have been so many different things that I've thought this path was, so many intentions that I've cycled through so many um, different kind of core aspirations of like what I thought the path was. And I remember starting, starting my practice and um, it was through friends that I, who were in a, a Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha, young adult Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha. And, uh, and so I started practicing, and I would, um, I would, I would sit, uh, I would sit against my wall in my apartment in Los Angeles, and my knees—you know how Don said, like knees below the hips. My knees were like about cheek level, <laughs> and um, and I would set my watch for two minutes, and just wait for the alarm to ring. Like that was my practice, but I did it every day. I was just like, I'm going to, got to practice today, right? And, um, you know, sometimes people have like early experiences of clarity or the settledness or just, you know, insight something. You know, it was just like... Not, not even the promise of something good coming, you know. I mean, literally. I'm not saying that to be like uh, make fun of myself. Like, not even the promise of something good coming. It, but what what just felt so urgent was like, I, I you know, like I this 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 situation needs attention. <laughs> You know, like, I, you know, I just can't believe I've been living like 
this. And so actually seeing, seeing what was happening in my mind was just startling and, um, and really provided like a, a, a deep abiding motivation, like I want to know what's happening here. This, this kind of um, matured into some, some kind of intention around um, something like reconnecting with my life, reconnecting with my heart, the sense of having just abandoned my heart in some way to, you know, b- the busyness of getting a life together, of materialism and acquiring and security. And um, so there was a, a kind of long, long phase where it, it really, the way it manifested was, it was like this kind of a quiet grieving process. You know, I think to some extent for time lost, you know, for the ways that I just in a sense, hadn't lived my life. You know, like if you're not present to your life, it just goes so fast. And uh, there was this kind of like softening and, and sense of reconnection. This is the, the poet uh, Donald, Donald, or David White um, describing uh, some work that he was doing. I, I don't know the full context, but some work he was doing in a corporation around meaning and uh, heartfulness. And so he wrote, um, some years ago while working at uh, AT&T, I found myself uh, working with a room full of particularly thoughtful managers We were looking at the way human beings find it necessary to sacrifice their own sacred desires and personal visions on the altar of work and success. Out of this, a woman wrote the following lines. She read them slowly from the back of the room, unaware how stricken we were by the silence she created. She said, 10 years ago, I turned my face for a moment and it became my life. Mindfulness, um, it does, it's not good for all things. It doesn't save us from all pains, but it does prevent us from that fate. We, we don't miss our life. There's a phase of a real kind of renunciation um, And this is, um, you know, a sense of, of uh, the framework of like what exploring, what don't I need, what's not going to do it for me, what looks to be promising but is forever deferred, you know. 
and this is was closely connected with um, uh, with reflections on on the first noble truth that there that there is suffering. Uh, that that uh, there's a certain kind of unquenchability in the ordinary objects of experience, and uh, as a way of of uh, kind of motivating myself, I think I, I turn towards more kind of monastic perspectives. And so I remember this this quote from. Um, uh, Bhante Gunaratna, um, and you can hear there's a kind of it's it's like this attempt to like uh, shake us into some sense of spiritual urgency, and uh, I don't know if I fully stand by all of it, but I know this kind of perspective was really uh, important and, and is still, still has a place in my heart. So he writes, um, there you are and you suddenly realize that you're spending your whole life just barely getting by. You manage to make ends meet somehow and look okay from the outside. But there are those times when you feel everything caving in on you and you keep those to yourself. Meanwhile, Way down under that, you just know there's got to be some other way to live, some better way to look at the world, some way to touch life more deeply. You click into it by chance now and then, you get a good job, you fall in love, you win the game, and for a while things are different. Life takes on a richness and clarity that makes the bad times and humdrum fade away. The texture of your experience changes and you say to yourself, okay, now I've made it, now I'll be happy. But then that fades too. So, um, I think we have to be wise how how we use the teachings. For some people, that kind of perspective may be deeply onward leading. Uh, that, that actually you can see that you spent too much time in cycles of holding out hope for the, the next thing to actually put the heart at rest permanently. And that kind of perspective of, uh, with that kind of hard edge can be really useful. Now for some people, that kind of perspective is probably, uh, is, can get entangled with your own harshness towards yourself or your own k- kinds of self-mortification uh, or something. And so we want to be skillful. How do we actually pick up these teachings? There's a long phase where I was quite focused on um, different capacities of the mind, of, of samadhi and stages of insight. 
and to to a kind of thirst to really know what uh, what's possible, how it can feel, how different it can feel to be human. And there's a certain way in which I think um, we hear the teachings, and there's a way that that um, we feel like the kind of exception to the rule, like that the Buddha maybe made a lot of sense for like everyone else, but I'm especially effed up or I'm just a little different that makes it less applicable. And there's like this subtle way that we can't imagine some of what's suggested in the path. And it actually takes knowing states of mind that are, uh, that are, are quite different from ordinary consciousness to begin to develop some trust in our own mind, in the practice, in our ability to, to walk this path. And so those experiences have a value in and of themselves. Of course, they're celebrated in this tradition. But in some ways, to me, they seem like um, one of their deepest values is that they help us keep going. And they help us cultivate a kind of a sense of... Um, of, of faith that is, uh, that's unwavering. And then the question, of course, is like, where, where's love in all of this? And uh, I've been uh, kind of disappointed to see the ways in which uh, wisdom and insight is compatible with harm and with that, that which is other than love. I think generally insight leads to the opening of the heart, but it doesn't always work that way. And so the question became for me, um, what kind of safeguards do we need to provide to, to make sure that, that the wisdom and love are co-evolving and that they don't diverge? And uh, I, I really come to, to trust the insight uh, that that you know to to trust the insight that leads to love that that's the kind of insight that I trust most and the thing that actually catalyzes us engaging lovingly with ourselves with our people with the world and so it's uh yeah, I have not practiced in this tradition, Brian has for, for many years, but in the, the culminating uh, picture of the, the, the Zen ox herding pictures, this sort of depiction of the, the evolution of, of freedom in, 
in uh, the last frame is a very ordinary looking person, uh, you know, moving into town with hand outstretched and gesture of simple kindness and generosity. So in all of this, as I think about all of these phases, I've never known where to put, if I had to put all, all my money on one intention, where would it be? What could I sort of like trust most deeply to take me through the next phase of my practice, whatever that is? And I'm not sure, but I think if I had to, to pick one, it would be curiosity. Curiosity, and just a kind of uh, a, a deep willingness to look, and a sense of uh, yeah, un, unfettered investigation. And in our, uh, in our practice, um, we talk about discipline, but, but curiosity in a lot of ways actually is, is much more valuable than discipline. When there's curiosity, there's no, you don't need to exert force on yourself to keep going, to explore. Like the, the question of like, like, what is this? What is this life? What is awareness? What, what is suffering? Like, all of this becomes urgent. And in a sense, we care more about awareness than we care about our life. The value of, of curiosity now, the way that curiosity takes shape, the way it manifests, is as mindfulness. That's the way curiosity manifests. It's just like a fervent wish to pay attention, to learn, to be awake. And it doesn't mean that we're uh, you know, uh, expect a kind of uninterrupted continuity of awareness, but it's just this sense of like, I want to know. And maybe you, you know when you've clicked into that at times. And it's just like all of a sudden, the, the breath, which might have been totally boring um, last period, is like very compelling. This is uh, uh, Nayana Ponikatera. Mindfulness is the unfailing master key for knowing the mind and is thus the starting point, the perfect tool for shaping the mind and thus the focal point, the lofty manifestation of the achieved freedom of the mind, and thus the culminating point. 
mindfulness, sati in Pali, um, is, is in some sense very familiar to us, but um, in other ways, it's, it's, um, I, I, I really feel like I'm still discovering what it is. That in some sense, we define mindfulness on the first day of mindfulness practice, but in an important sense, understanding what it is, is, is not the starting point, but is the fruition of practice. And sometimes it's like um, having too much confidence that we know what mindfulness is dulls our contact with the moment. Because we're paying attention in maybe these habitual ways, whereas there's a kind of wonder to meeting things in a new way of improvising. Improvising. How do we look? What's mindfulness right now? Gil Fransdahl said, um, if you're meditating, you're learning to meditate. So it's not like we learn to meditate and then we just go and do it. In a certain sense, each time we sit, we are discovering the practice again. Dukkha, suffering, the kind of tides of confusion, like they, when they rain, we've really forgotten. And to wake up to all the different faces of suffering, takes a lot of improvisation, takes a willingness to just explore what's mindfulness now? How can I be with this? What's, what, what is love now? Mindfulness is, is more, more nuanced than ordinary knowing. Normally we take everything at face value. So we see and we hear and we feel, but we just sort of accept that at face value. And mindfulness is knowing that we're experiencing. Knowing that we're experiencing. And sometimes the difference between experiencing and knowing we're experiencing is subtle and sometimes it's uh, enormous. Knowing that we're experiencing, knowing you're seeing, that you're hearing. The move from that, from just seeing and hearing to knowing you're seeing and hearing, it looks innocent at the beginning, but it is, uh, in that, that gesture of awareness, there are radical possibilities. Because it means that we're no longer fully embedded in a world of, of, of things and cells and uh, reality. We're actually knowing our life as experience. 
when we know our life as experience, when the mind does not get caught and fixate something into reality, there's no place for suffering to land. Like mindfulness, it really is a, a, a form of freedom. In its radical sense, it is a form of freedom. Because it's like nothing is getting caught in the mesh of our being. It's just experience that's passing through, passing through, being known, being known. To suffer means we have to stop and hold experience. And so we explore, what is it to just... let go of the notion of self and world and know everything as experience. Mindfulness is typically, uh, well, it's defined in a lot of ways, but, but um, I think quite compelling is this the model of mindfulness that is combines uh, present-time awareness and equanimity. So the present-time awareness, um, you know, sometimes people talk about like a, like a telescope, you know, and uh, looking at the moon, right? And the present-time awareness combines a certain kind of, of stability, and clarity and alertness. And so if the telescope is shaking and we're looking through it, we'll miss the grandeur of the moon. So we stabilize the view. We steady the mind. If the telescope is out of focus, we miss the grandeur of the moon. We focus the telescope. We begin to see experience with more and more nuance, a higher level of magnification, a kind of, uh, we're zooming in to become more intimate with experience. And there's alertness. Yeah. And so this is this kind of aspect of, of present-time awareness, of, of, of knowing our ordinary experience in this, this way, with stability, clarity, and alertness. But then sometimes people come and, and say to me, like, I'm paying attention, I'm, you know, I'm paying attention to it, I'm paying attention to what's happening, and it still sucks. You know, like, what's your excuse, Matthew? You know, um, and that is um, is usually a kind of sign of like the equanimity side of mindfulness is missing. And so, uh, equanimity is um, one of my my main teachers, Shinzen Young, called it a, a radical permission to feel radical permission to feel. 
pointing to a sense of like the less and less friction with experience, less and less sense of, if we think about like the mesh of our being, sometimes experience lands and gets caught, it sticks. That obsessive thought, that the aversion to the pain, the heartache, the like, it comes into awareness and it gets, it like sticks. The attention gets fixated. There's friction, there's resistance. And so the equanimity is the, the practice of, of relaxing the body, relaxing the mind, of letting go to the extent that we can of letting experience come to us, letting experience impact us. Our deep tendency is to reach out and manufacture experience, to engineer things, to exert ourselves. And equanimity is this, this practice of letting life come to us and be willing to be affected, willing to be affected. And we develop some confidence over time that it, you know, when we feel besieged by life, it feels like something inside is going to be damaged. I almost literally feel like I'm bracing in a certain way against the experience. And like if I relax deeply enough, something precious inside is going to be, you know, damaged. And we learn to, uh, to let, uh, let the, the winds of feeling blow with a, a, a kind of confidence that uh, nothing inside will be blown over. So present time awareness and equanimity. Now, the line between being with, opening to, accepting, and subtly resisting is a very thin line. Does that make sense? The line between opening to and a kind of kind of opening, but kind of resisting, right? Maybe you sense that sometimes in yourself. It's like, um, yeah, it's like, like half, half-baked equanimity, kind of. <laughs> I'm very familiar with this state. It's like the, it's the transactional, transactional equanimity where you're bartering with the pain, kind of and willing to give two minutes of equanimity for eternal relief, you know? (laughs) Michelle McDonald, um, an insight teacher in Hawaii and teaches at IMS a lot um, uh, over the years, she, um, I think it's her language around karmic knots that these certain kind of 
you know, habit energies, grooves in the mind, uh, deep kind of tangles, karmic knots, she calls them, that, uh, that working with those as, that arise, as those arise in practice, uh, this, is a, this takes some, some real um, subtlety, and they will arise. It's not an accident, you know. Um, we don't wish suffering upon you, but we create the schedule <laughs> knowing <laughs> that suffering will arise. <laughs> yeah. So this is Michelle. Uh, we're learning to have that deep, unconditional acceptance. We're not trying to get rid of it. With a karmic knot, if you manage to open to it, to try to, keep some, uh, try to keep some relationship with the anchor, so with the breath or something, the line between accepting it and trying to get rid of it is very thin. That's the definition of a karmic knot. You'll think you're there because you're accepting it, but that's not how it works. That little part of you that wants to get rid of it slips in. You don't see it. And then what you're doing is reinforcing aversion by staying with it. I believe our karmic knots are our teachers in this life. It's not going to open up unless you truly want a relationship with it. So we can feel in to what it, what it means to like have that curiosity, that willingness where we, the heart is on board. We want to be with it. We want a relationship with this tangle, this knot. We want that. And it doesn't mean we'll know how to navigate or we won't be pulled back into forms of subtle aversion, but we're we're learning to pay attention even to to, uh, that which is most evocative for us. In all of this, we are um, we're coming out of the density of stories in which we live. We tell such elaborate stories about our lives, about ourselves, about our retreat. Yeah? Like, who doesn't have some kind of running documentary voiceover going, right? <laughs> How, where this is going, right? And, uh, and so mindfulness is, is it's, it, we're, we, use, we use stories, and in some ways the Dharma matures. We start to tell more and more uh, sophisticated, nuanced, wise 
rich stories about our lives. It's not that we're trying to get rid of that, but to only ever abide in the density of our stories is problematic. This is uh, scholar uh, Yuval Harari. Um, they write, uh, Homo sapiens are storytelling animals. We think in stories. We expect reality to be a story and we expect the meaning of life to be a story. Some huge cosmic drama with a beginning, middle, and end with heroes and villains, and very importantly, with a role for me to play in the drama, in the big story. I think the problem is that reality doesn't come in the shape of a story. I think a kind of rule of thumb is that if the meaning of life that you think you've found comes in the shape of a story, it is wrong. It's a human invention. How to overcome that? I don't think we're anywhere near knowing the answer to that one. So curiosity is not a quest for a better story of me. We're exploring the reaches of awareness. Seeing what the difference is between experiencing and knowing that we're experiencing. And we find that um, to be perennially identified with thought is to be, to be confined, to live in a narrow space. It's claustrophobic to just be a character in the story of one's life. And so we're practicing looking in this very steady way, present time awareness and equanimity of beginning to um, uh, you find the safety of awareness. Whatever's arising for you, it can be known. It often doesn't feel that way. It, it feels like what's arising is a commandment to do something, but we can look. Whatever's arising can be known, and in knowing it, something happens. In knowing it, in really knowing it, in knowing it with the kind of open, open-heartedness, equanimity, something opens up. There's a space that opens up. And it doesn't make the unpleasant become pleasant, but there is a space that opens up. And we can begin to be nourished by the many faces of our life.
So, yeah, I wish you um, so much uh, goodness in your uh, explorations. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.